1 Samuel chapter 16. My study of David has provoked me greatly in the last few weeks. Before I left, I began, and while I was gone, much pleasure meditating upon this man after God's own heart and his life, his character, not not his actions. I wasn't interested in how many stones he took to meet Goliath and things like that, or the 37 chosen men he had around them, though that's interesting in itself. It was his character. What made him so that God would say he was a man after my own heart. What was it about him? And I can't preach all that this morning, but uh, you can expect possibly to hear it in the weeks to come. This morning I want to go after a heart that is after God's heart. I want to go after the pure heart that we just read in Psalm 24. And I want to begin with this 16th chapter where we are introduced to David. God has rejected... Saul from being king. God chose Saul. God changed Saul's heart. God brought the nation and Saul together so that there was a union there. But then Saul showed his profane nature. In his impatience, you can read, I believe it's in 12 or 13, I think it's 13, where Samuel told Saul, Saul was petrified. The Philistines had gathered... He was afraid to go to battle. And he asked Samuel for help, and Samuel said, Wait seven days, and I'll be there to help you. Well, Saul waited seven days, and Samuel must have been five minutes late. And so Saul shows his profane impatience, and he builds an altar and makes a sacrifice himself. And right then, he lost the kingdom. We often think that it's when he didn't kill King Agag of the Amalekites. That was a second manifestation of his profane fear of men. The first one was his impatience in not waiting on the Lord and upon Samuel. And you know, as soon as the altar was made and the animal was killed, guess who appeared? Samuel. The Lord's timing. Because all he was doing was testing that man. Anyway, the Lord took the kingdom away from Saul. And the word that came to Samuel was, I have looked for another man that has a heart like mine rather than this man that's king. And oh, brethren, brethren, when I look in the Word of God, I would rather be a forgiven David than a monogamous Saul. Do you understand? Does everyone understand? I'd rather be a forgiven David than a monogamous Saul because Saul's heart was profane and David's was pure. That's the difference. And And I want you to desire that difference. To, to think that the great God would say, this man is a man after my own heart. And to say it in the Old Testament and to say it in the New Testament, that's a long time after his sins, isn't it? To say it in the New Testament, still be looking at David as that example. Still preached in Acts chapter 13 and verse 22. That is our desire to have that pure heart that David had. Look at how we're first introduced to it. Samuel is sent by God to Bethlehem to find the next king. God has rejected King Saul, and he's sent to Bethlehem to find the next one. And he is sent to the house of Jesse, and Samuel tells Jesse to get all of his sons out there because he's gonna, he needs to do something with them. Verse 6, And it came to pass, when they were come. How many sons did Jesse have? Six. Eight. How many show up here? Seven. 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 Why didn't eight show up? Because they didn't like the little guy. They didn't think very highly of the little guy. The youngest one was out keeping the sheep, and it never really crossed their minds that he ought to be invited because he was just a little runt. David's exciting. David wasn't the best looking or the tallest or the strongest. Wait till Samuel takes a look at Eliab, the firstborn. It's exciting. This man, David, there's two whole books in the Bible written about this. Why was it written? To fill up space so that we have a Bible this thick? Or was it written for our learning? That we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Was it written so that we might have an example given to us? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 5 and 10 tell us that's why the Old Testament is given to us. So if you ever feel like you're the runt, you're not very important, 
Aha! You can still have a heart that is like God's heart. Because all the ways that you're measuring yourself by comparing yourself by outward standards, God doesn't... I'm getting ahead of myself. God doesn't care about them. It's your heart. Right. And can we be a church, maybe small, maybe insignificant in this world, but that has a heart in our congregation that's made up of the hearts of each of us that is like God's own heart. That is my desire. I had to give you that. There were eight sons and seven are here. Verse 6, And it came to pass when they were come that he, that is Samuel, looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Amen. Number one's gone. And he was a good-looking man. Look at his countenance. His countenance is mentioned. His height is mentioned. And Samuel is sure that this is the Lord's. Samuel was sure. Then Jesse called Abinadab, verse 8, son number 2, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made Shammah to pass by. And he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? They haven't even mentioned David. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that comforting? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and with all of a beautiful countenance, and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah, where he lived. Verse 7 is the key verse from this passage. The Lord explained to Samuel, Look not on his countenance, nor on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. The way that we typically measure people is not the way that the Lord measures people. Right. The Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. There is no one in here that cannot have a heart like God's heart. If you are a child of God, He has given you a new man, and if you will purify your heart, you can have a heart after God's own heart and be like David. It's just that there are very, very few in this world that have ever wanted to be like David. They do not care enough about the Lord. They love their own lives too much. It's it's here. I would be excited to be sitting in your chair and to have someone telling me this. I remember when I first was told this story a long, long time ago. I wanted to be like David. Who cares about David killing Goliath? Big deal. Do you know what... That's an imbecile that look that focuses on David's life and sees him killing Goliath. That's a that's an infant. You want to look way beyond that. Listen, Joab did things as great as killing Goliath, and the Bible tells us about Joab's heart. David did not like Joab's heart. Joab was his nephew. Listen, Joab was the mightiest man in the Old Testament when it came to loyalty and fighting in battle. Right. Joab defended David for forty years. Joab was his nephew. Joab was the son of Zeruiah, David's sister. Joab defended David when he was out of favor and running in caves. Joab was the captain of the host when David had a huge army. Joab was a great man. On David's deathbed, do you know what he said to his son, Solomon? As soon as I'm dead, kill Joab. Do you know why? Because Joab's spirit was too much for him. 
David had to say in a couple of places, ye sons of Zeruiah, there were three of them, three incredible men, three incredible soldiers. Ye sons of Zeruiah, you're too hard for me. There's the heart of David. He killed his own nephew because they were too hard for him. Because David had a pure heart. And when David gave his word to a man, that word was as good as God's word. And Joab was too jealous. And whenever there were men getting close to David, Joab would kill them. In his loyalty to David and his loyalty to himself. And it was too much for David. I'm chasing a rabbit right there, but I want to tell you about David. He had a pure heart. And he recognized in other men that there wasn't a heart like that. My goal as your pastor, what is a pastor's goal? Is it to build a big church? Big? What does big mean? I want to build a pure church. I don't care what size it is. Because I know that's what pleases the Lord. What, is, it to run, is it to be an administrator and have programs like everybody has these days? My job is to present every man and every woman perfect in Christ Jesus so that when Jesus Christ comes, I will have accomplished my goal if every one of you have a heart like David's and have a heart like God's and you're perfect before Him. Right. If you're distracted and playing around with the things of this world and are double-minded, as I'm going to show you in a verse in a little while, I will have failed. Or you will have failed. Because the Bible says every man shall bear his own burden. Right. But I'm going to do my best that we can all have hearts like David. And I'm going to preach on it and I'm going to pound on it. And though I may not have called it by these words over the last two years, it is what I have been preaching. I want this. And I want it for all of you. Be- being away, Being away with my wife and meditating on what is love what, what is love? What's the highest measure of love? You know, even to my wife, the highest measure of love is not going out to eat. It's not going on a vacation. It's not holding her close. It's not great intimacy. It's none of those things. Do you know what the greatest thing I can do for my wife? Is to help her have a heart like David's right. and a heart like God's, to love God and to seek Him with her whole heart. I am my first responsibility. She's my second. I have a whole string of others that I want to have I want them to have hearts and all of you are then there because God has given you to me to help have a heart that's the highest measure of love is to take your 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 wife and lead her listen there's no man in here if who didn't if he got his heart right with God would be led by his wife no way she is the weaker vessel in all of those ways if a man gets his heart right with God he should then be leading his wife to have a heart like that also. And then his children. And then our brethren. This is my goal. My zeal is great, and I'm praying for the Lord to bless my zeal. The heart is the key. The heart is the key. Throughout the Bible, men would alter their outward appearance because other men look at the outward appearance. You know, we all came this morning. We all dressed this morning. We have sung this morning together. We have bowed our heads when we prayed this morning. That is the ceremonial aspect of God's worship. But the Lord's looking past all of that. Past all of that. Right into your heart. What is this man got in his heart? Does he have bitterness towards someone? Does he have a grudge? Does he have envy? Hatred? Anger? Is he uncomfortable here? Is, does he wish he was out by himself? Does he chafe at being here? Does he love my word? Has he confessed his sins? He's in our heart. Listen, there, there is nothing that is hid to the Lord. Right. His eyes see the thoughts and intents of our hearts. There is nothing hid. And if that ceremonial part has got to be just... That should be an automatic. We show up here on Sundays. The part that, need, that we need to work on is going after our hearts. The heart is the key in the worship of God. The heart is the seat of your affections. It's where your choices come from by what you love or desire the most. The heart are your affections. If our heart likes the world, we're going to choose the world. We're going to choose carnal activities to fill our lives instead of Him. Now, the Lord, by regeneration, has given us the power 
in our new man to make a choice for our affections. Right. Now, you say, I thought you just said the affections are the ones that make your choices. Ah, yes, that's true. Total depravity is having no affection toward God. Right. Total depravity does not mean you can't think. Total depravity isn't that you can't imagine a spirit being. Total depravity is that you have no love toward God. You hate Him. God, when He regenerates us, gives us a new man that is able to set our affections on heavenly things. It wouldn't be there in the Bible unless we were able to do it. And He's given us a nature like Himself that we can choose to direct those affections. And once those affections are directed toward heavenly and spiritual things, your daily decision-making process becomes easy because your affections are in the right place. That's why there's so much emphasis on the heart. David praying, Lord, incline mine heart unto thy commandments. Let your commandments be the affection of my heart. That's where he's asking for prayer. And sometimes he'll just say that he's going to do it. I have inclined my heart. The heart is the key. Look look at how important it is. Just at a few references. I don't want to make some exhaustive study of the word heart. But look at Psalm 66. Psalm 66. Some of you probably know the verse. The heart is the key to us being like God, to us being like the Lord, to us being like David. The Lord does not look on the outward appearance. He looks on the heart. Look what the Bible says in in Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I regard it, if I have unconfessed sin in my heart, if I toy with sin, if I allow something that God hates in my heart, if, I re- if I'm regarding anything that is wrong in my heart and letting it stay there, God will not hear my prayers. And if God's not hearing our prayers, we're lost. Because without me, Jesus said, ye can do nothing. We are in a troubled mess if the Lord isn't hearing our prayers. Right. And He will not hear our prayers if in our heart we are regarding or holding on to any sin. This is how important the heart is. I just quoted a verse from Hebrews chapter 4 that the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the, the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Amen. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees everything in your heart. Brethren, it is no offense to me. If you like me or not, it doesn't matter to me. It's no big deal. I've never cared about people liking me or not. That's why I'm a loner by nature. Listen, the only reason I'm a pastor is because God forced me. If I had my way, I'd never see anybody but my family. Anybody that knows anything about me knows that to be true. But I care about your souls. And if right now you have any thoughts in there like, I wish this sermon would get over with, or why is he on this subject again, or who is he trying to tell me to think this way or to have a heart like David, if you're thinking any negative thoughts like that, it's no skin off my back. It's not going to hurt me a bit. But I don't want you to have it for your own soul's sake. And the point I'm making right now is every moment that we're thinking... Our thought, our heart is operating. All the time our heart is operating. You know, sometimes with my children I'll say, do you know that you're thinking all the time? <laughs> sometimes when I look at them I doubt my own statement. But uh, I say, do you know that you're thinking all the time? And they'll say, no, I don't think I'm thinking all the time. And I'll say, well, then you're thinking about not thinking. Because we've got this apparatus that is, that is conscious and aware at all times, and our heart is, is directing it by what we love. And so right now I'm even asking you to cleanse your hearts and to direct them to the Word of God. This is a wonderful opportunity that you're hearing a message. Jesus would say this, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. If, If God's given you the ear to even have a little bit of desire to be like David, and He's given you someone to tell you the message, hear it! Don't oppose it or fight it. Gird up the loins of your mind if you went to bed too late last night. And all of that's part of it. The preparation is not to become Pharisees and coming to church. The preparation is 
for you to do all that you can to help your heart. Because if we're tired, your heart gets distracted so easily. Look at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 23, another reference about the importance of the heart and how the Lord examines it. And all, he walks among his churches, checking out the hearts. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 23, Jesus Christ says, And I will kill her children with death. That's a heretical woman in the church at Thyatira. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. This is Revelation 2.23. All the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. The reins are the controlling instruments of your faculties. And your heart directs, you know, if your heart wants to go to town, you direct the reins on the horse to take you to town. If your heart wants to take you to the things of this world, it's going to direct your choices of where you go and what you think about and what you look at to the things of this world. The hearts and reins. Jesus is walking among his churches looking at all your hearts. The heart is the key to the worship of God. Come back to Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs chapter 22. Thankfully, I was able to preach to you two weeks ago about Jonathan and David. Remember, David came and uttered that humble little statement to King Saul after he had killed Goliath, when he could have been the national hero. All he said was, I am the son of thy servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. And Jonathan is standing there, intimidated by this literal giant killer. He falls in love with him. Here's the explanation for it from a son who got to hear this story many times. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 11. He that loveth pureness of heart for the grace of his lips the king shall be his friend. Amen. That verse is describing David and the consequences of David's heart is describing Jonathan. He that loveth pureness of heart what, is, what, what results from a pure heart? Gracious lips. Everything you have to say is going to be kind. Gentle, pleasant, pleasing, helpful, edifying, because you've got it flowing from a pure heart. He that loveth pureness of heart, for the grace of his lips, the king shall be his friend. Kings are superior people. That's why they're kings. That's why Saul was king. God chose a great man out of Israel. Then gave him a new heart. Fully equipped him for the job. Jonathan, being the king's son, trained with the king's training, standing there, sees David with that gracious speech flowing from his pure heart. And he fell in love with him, and he loved him as his own soul, man to man, because of that pure heart. This is how important the heart is. Good men, righteous men, can recognize that heart in others, because from it flows gracious speech and righteous conduct. And men who don't have that kind of heart, from them flows bitter speech, critical speech, unthankful speech, and ungodly conduct. And that's how we're recognized. By godly men. They're able to see that. Because they look beyond just a ceremonial appearance to the actual fruit of that life. And Jonathan was able to see, isn't it amazing how quickly he was able to see in David an exceptional man and to fall in love with him. And that story is there in the Bible, and this verse explaining it, it all flowed from David's heart. May God bless us to have hearts like this. We can measure the hearts of others. Not every detail. Not instantly. But it doesn't take very long. Look at Luke chapter 6 and verse 45. Jesus wanted us to know this, that we can measure the hearts of men by their conduct. Because a good heart isn't a hid thing. A good heart isn't something you can keep to yourself. A good heart's going to bear fruit. A, a tree eventually is going to give itself away as to what kind of a tree it is. During the winter, you can walk through a woods and you might get confused because there's no leaves or fruit hanging from it for you to know what kind of a tree it is. But if it's a living tree, it will soon be bearing fruit and you will know the difference between an apple tree and an orange tree. And, and maybe most of you would without the fruit. 
Maybe I wouldn't. But you're going to see the fruit. Look at Luke chapter 6, verse 44. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, bringeth forth that which is good. A good man has a heart that is a good treasure. And there are things coming out of that treasure that are good, and you're able to see them. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance, the treasure, whatever it is, good or evil, for of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaketh. If the heart, which is what we love, is evil, then what comes out of our mouth is going to be evil. And what we choose to do is going to be evil. If our heart is good, what we talk about is going to be good, and what we choose to do is going to be good. And we can know one another that way. And we can examine our own selves that way. We don't want evil hearts in this church. We don't want lukewarm hearts. We want hearts like David. Hearts that are sold out to the Lord. For the Lord's sake. For no one else's sake, but the Lord's sake. And then your sake. Because that man is going to be blessed. But brethren, it's, it's with this heart, it's with this heart doctrine that we become hypocrites. This is where Phariseeism is lodged in all of our souls, where we like to measure by different criteria than what God measures. God measures by the heart, and we want to find some other way to do it. And the Pharisees were the ones that Jesus attacked most vehemently in his life. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And what was that leaven? Hypocrisy. What was hypocrisy? Not purifying their hearts, but making up other excuses and other measurements by which they gauged their religion. Jesus attacked the Pharisees aggressively. Look at Matthew chapter 15. Because the Pharisees avoided heart religion. Because they didn't have good hearts. They had evil hearts. Even though, if you were to see them at the temple, they were wearing their spiritual robes. If you saw them at the temple, they had Scripture actually tied onto their forehead. If you saw them at the temple, they were casting bags of money into the treasury. If you saw them at the temple, they were praying loud. And Jesus went past them to a widow woman who threw in her last two mites. That woman had a good heart. He went past the Pharisees to the publican and wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is a pure heart. Amen. Jesus saw that Jesus sees the pure hearts, and Jesus sees the profane and proud hearts. Jesus saw Saul's heart, took away the kingdom. Jesus saw David's heart, gave him the kingdom. Jesus saw the big bags of money being dropped in the treasury. Didn't mean a thing to him. Jesus saw the two mites from that widow woman. It meant everything to him. And she's recorded in Scripture. And he said she's given far more than they have. The heart. Matthew chapter 15. There's 20 verses here. I'm not going to read them all for sure. But if you were to read this passage, the Pharisees come to Jesus and complain because his disciples don't wash their hands. They had a little religious ceremonial rule of washing their precious little hands before they went to worship. And they're, they're confronting Jesus as to why his disciples don't do it. And Jesus unloads on them. You hypocrites! You talk about worshiping God, but you don't do anything that matters to the Lord. You are so worried about washing the hands, which is just one of your stupid traditions, instead of worrying about what the Word of God teaches. The Word of God teaches that you're to honor your father and your mother. And that honor means pay. It doesn't mean just yes, sir, and no, ma'am. It means pay. And Jesus taught them, you people have the Word of God given to you, and it says honor your father and your mother. But you take your assets and you pledge them to the temple so that you tell your parents you don't have anything left to give them. This is all here in the passage. 
Then you worried about what's on the hands because you might eat a little dirt. And then Jesus goes and explains, it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man. It's what comes out of a man. Because he's teaching heart religion, which they couldn't stand. Because heart religion is, is the high level of religion. It's the high level of worship of God. This ceremonial thing, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, is not worrying about our heart. And it is a stench to God. Amen. He says, in vain do you worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. You're drawing nigh to me with your mouth, and you're honoring me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And it's the heart we want to go after. We want our heart to be walking with the Lord, in love with the Lord, loving spiritual things more than this world's things, loving His Word, loving the assembly of His saints, loving to meditate upon Him, and communing with Him often from our hearts, in our thoughts. The Pharisees had no, no room for that. They'd pay their tithes. Oh, were they, they were so meticulous about their tithes. You pay tithes of mint. Now, how much mint did they grow? But they, oh, they'd be there at the temple with their tenth of their mint and their anise and their cumin. Three different herbs. They'd be there with that tithe, but they hadn't changed their heart. Do you know what Jesus said? You've omitted the weightier matters of the law. Judgment. And that isn't punishing people. Judgment is treating people fairly. Right. Judgment, mercy, and faith. Who cares about your tithes? Where are these three weightier matters? These things are more important. And where does good judgment and mercy and faith come from? It's here in our heart. That's Matthew 23, 23. It's in our heart. The Lord wants us to search our hearts, and Jesus attacked these Pharisees. Come back to Matthew chapter 5. Let me show you how we do it. We do it just like the Pharisees do it. We have taken all of God's commandments and isolated certain ones that are visible, easily identified, scandalous, and we focus on them. And then we minimize and neglect a whole batch of other commandments that deal with the heart. The Pharisees did that, and I want you to see how Jesus, in his great sermon against the Pharisees, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, goes right after that. After his introduction in verses from the beginning of the chapter through verse 20, explaining that he did not come to put away the law of Moses. He came to fulfill it. He then goes right after how a pure heart views things. We look at murder and we say, Murder! Horrible! What a horrible sin! I would never do anything like murder. That man's a murderer. That is horrible. He is a great sinner. And so we condemn the murderer because we're not guilty of murder, or so we think. And that's what the Pharisees did. And I've taught this before, but brethren, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. This is Him trying to correct the Phariseeism that is in all of our hearts. We pick certain sins, and murder we definitely think is very scandalous. What if we had a man in here who was guilty of murder? Could you commune with him? How about a forgiven murderer? Would you go for a ride with him alone? We're focusing on that sin. Could you ever look at him and say he's got a heart like David? Isn't that exciting? It, do you know what? I, did David commit murder? Mm -hmm. But I ask you, do, would our hearts allow us to look at a murderer and say, you know, that man has a heart like David? Jesus comes to correct the Pharisees, and he comes to correct us this morning. Verse 21, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. Notice he doesn't say it is written. I've taught this before, but I, I want you to know your Bibles. The difference here is enormous. 
Most Christians in this city today teach that Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the message of the kingdom, the gospel, the, the, the gospel of the kingdom, which is going to be practiced during the millennium. These three chapters are the millennium message because they don't understand them. They think that Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 something different from the Old Testament because of this statement right here. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. They look at that and they say, See, Moses' law was severe. Thou shalt not kill. Jesus' law is different. It's merciful. Because, and that's what it looks like. That's the sound of the words. But what is their sense? You Jews have been taught the tradition of the elders verbally. Thou shalt not kill. And the interpretation that those elders have given you, thou shalt not kill, is grossly inadequate. Verse 22, But I say unto you, because see those Pharisees had taken the commandment, thou shalt not kill, and limited it down to actual murder, where you would physically take a blunt instrument or a knife or a gun and kill another person, and they would be buried. They had taken it and limited the commandment to that in their traditions and in their interpretation of the commandment, Thou shalt not kill. Jesus is not changing the law of Moses at all. He's just rightly dividing the word of truth and giving us the proper sense. And so he points out the commandment, Thou shalt not kill, goes further than the overt act. It goes into our heart where all the commandments go. The thought of foolishness is sin. Right. Look at what it says. Verse 22, But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Jesus takes the, the, the sixth commandment, Thou shalt not kill, and opens it up. It includes being angry with your brother without a cause. Now, anybody who's angry with their brother always has a cause. Right? They do. You don't get angry unless you have a cause course you probably give me 10 but the cause here is a righteous cause right. if you don't have a righteous cause based on god's word and you're following through with it properly you don't have a right to be angry with your brother whosoever shall say to his brother raka a term of disrespect shall be in danger of the council whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire there jesus christ is taking the sixth commandment thou shalt not kill and opening it up. Anger without a righteous cause. Dis terms of disrespect and railing on a brother. Calling a brother a fool just to deride him without a justifiable reason. Jesus called men fools, and so did the apostles. But they had a scriptural justified reason for doing so when someone was truly acting as a fool. Right. Notice how the commandment is opened up so far from it being taking another life, it's just being angry. Without a cause. This is the religion of Jesus Christ. Amen. To have a heart like God's heart, we have to have a heart that's pure. You tell me I've never committed murder. We've all committed murder. Amen. In, in the light of this verse, right. in the light of this teaching, and this is what we want to go after. We want to go into our heart and make sure that we're not harboring any bitterness toward any brother. That we're not calling anyone a fool without a cause that we're not angry with anyone without a cause. Notice those words are without a cause. Every new translation of the Bible, every single one of them, Matthew 5.22, those three words are missing. Because the religion of this world is not the religion of God. Right. God does not condemn righteous anger. Listen, the Bible is filled with righteous indignation at sin. And sinners. That's a justifiable cause. But there's a proper thing that you ought to be doing with that anger. And that's going and dealing with that brother's transgression in a godly way. I can't preach on that right now. The point I want to make is look at how Jesus opens up the commandment. If we had a murderer sitting in here, could you think that he had a heart like God's heart? Could we give him any hope of having a heart like God's heart? Yes. And brethren, every time we've been angry without a cause against a brother, every time we've reviled someone with a name to ourselves, at home, with our wife, with our kids, in our own heart, we have broken the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. This is how we go after a heart that's pure like God's. David had that in his heart. 
I can show you places in the Bible where he prayed for his enemies and he was sick when they were sick. He was so, he was so tender toward his personal enemies. Oh, toward the enemies of God, he, was, he could sling pretty well and wield a sword pretty well. Notice how Jesus just goes, bam, head on against that hypocritical religion that we're all tempted to do by ranking sins. Jesus puts anger without a cause against a brother equal to letting someone's blood out and killing them. And if that needs to be our measurement system because it's the Lord's measurement system. And we need to have His measurement system in order for us to be like the Lord. And He, he keeps dealing with this all the way down, 23, 24. He, talk, he talks about, if you're going to go to worship God, and you've got any problem between you and another brother, you better go get that taken care of before you go make your offering, because I'm not going to receive your offering because you're a murderer. 21, all the way down through 26, is dealing with the violation of the Sixth Commandment. Then we come to verse 27. Here comes another scandalous sin. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Notice he doesn't say, You have read, or it is written, Thou shalt not commit adultery. It's their false interpretation of it. Their false interpretation of adultery was limiting adultery to the overt act of a man having sexual intercourse with a woman who was not his wife. What does Jesus do? He says in verse 28, But... I say unto you that that interpretation is incorrect because the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, gets opened up also. It includes looking on a woman to lust after her in your heart. So the thought of desiring a woman to commit adultery with her is equal to the crime in Jesus' measurement system. Then he goes a few verses further and he says to use the divorce laws to get rid of a wife in order to get another wife, which the Pharisees, do you remember their questions? Is it right to divorce a woman for every cause? Half of the Jews could divorce for any cause. And so Jesus here is attacking that hypocritical religion. Outwardly. Outwardly. Has Joe Pharisee ever committed adultery? No. Does Joe Pharisee have three divorces over the last ten years to get rid of women he was tired of? Yes. The Pharisees' way of measuring them was Joe was a great godly man because he'd never committed adultery. Jesus' measurement was he is an adulterer and he's forced his wife into adultery, his wives into adultery by breaking up marriages in an ungodly way and for an ungodly reason. Do you see how Jesus Christ goes after the heart? He goes after our very thoughts. But we, have a, we are evil we, and we tend toward evil by not having hearts pure like God's, because we change His measurement system. And we've got to keep it God's way by going into our hearts after our very thoughts. What if there was a thief in here? A robber? What if we had a robber? You know, could you look at a robber and say, can a robber have a heart like God's heart? Well, let's, let's just do another little comparison. In the Bible... If you're not giving to the Lord in your tithes and offerings, Malachi 3.8, you are a robber. Malachi 3.8. So we've got, we've, got, we've got to backpedal. Every time we look at a commandment of God, backpedal all the way up into our heart. Where am I cheating on this commandment of God? And you say, well, I can't afford to give. Take that up with the widow. Amen. The point, because that giving right now isn't my point. If it's a point, if it's a point in your life, then it should be your point. It's not my point. My point is how we look at a robber and we say that's a horrible, scandalous crime. But if we cheat God in our giving, we are a robber, according to Malachi three eight. That's how God looks at things, and we want a heart like God's heart. So we're constantly examining our heart. Where am I cheating the Lord? Am I cheating Him in my marriage by ungodly thoughts? Am I cheating him in the sixth commandment by holding anger and bitterness? Am I cheating him in giving and making myself a robber? The Bible says rebellion is witchcraft. You know, none of us want to be guilty of witchcraft, but rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. 
And stubbornness is like idolatry. If you're a stubborn person, you are guilty of a crime equal to, in God's eyes, as idolatry. The only thing we ought to ever be stubborn for is what? Proof in the Word of God. Any other stubbornness is like idolatry. That's what Saul was guilty of, and the kingdom was taken away from him, and he lived the rest of his days in a mess. Covetousness in the New Testament, Colossians 3.5, which is idolatry. Covetousness. Wanting something that you don't have and don't have a legitimate right to. Worrying about something that you don't have and, and scheming of ways to get it. Worrying about something and not being content with what you have is idolatry because you're making something very important. And God knows it because he's looking at your heart. This is God's measurement system. And for us to have a heart like David's, we've got to take our hearts and search every nook and cranny of them and get rid of anything compromising his commandments. Because our temptation is, I've, I, I, I wouldn't steal. I can't believe that. You know, you, you find a $100 bill on the floor at the grocery store, and you look up, and there's a woman that's just putting her purse back together, and you grab it, and you take it up to her, and you give her the 100 and you walk away saying, oh, Lord, did you see that? I have a heart like yours, don't I? But then... You're not saving. You're not giving to the Lord. You're a robber. Do you, you follow? Right. We, we, we will focus on these little deeds when we need to be examining and searching our whole hearts and making sure they're truly pure because that external act of giving to the woman or when the, when the cashier gives you too much change back and you return it, that is an external act for the praise of men because you love to hear the woman say, Oh, you are such an honest person. And you may not have done it only for that reason. Who knows, you may have done it purely for the Lord. But the temptation in our wicked little hearts, brethren, we've all got them, the temptation is to take pride in her commendation when the commendation that we want is the Lord's. And he examines every aspect of how we're using our money. How serious is God? He that setteth light by his father or his mother is worthy of capital punishment. Deuteronomy 27, 16, you don't need to turn there. He that setteth light by his father or his mother, let him be cursed. That is honoring your father and your mother. See, we look at honoring your father and your mother, and as long as the person isn't coming home drunk, beating up the siblings, or stealing from dad, he's not doing a bad job. Talking disrespectfully about your parents is a capital offense. Do we search our hearts about how we talk and treat our parents? Do you ever... Romans chapter 1. I will not be much longer, though I have much more. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through the end of the chapter. Fifteen excellent verses. We read them, we know them. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And it goes on to say that God in His natural creation of creating the sun, the stars, the moon, and the earth has given man enough of a witness that there is a God in heaven and He has eternal power and He has a Godhead. They are without excuse. We read that. We understand it. We believe it. It goes on to say that men, when they take the glory of the incorruptible God and give that glory to corruptible man or to images that they've made, they're wicked. They're idolaters. God blinds their hearts. They're unthankful. This is, this is all right here in the passage. They're unthankful. We know the passage. And so God gives them over to a reprobate mind to be sodomites. We know the answer to the question, where does sodomy come from? It comes from the judgment of God for giving the glory of God to corruptible man and for being unthankful because Romans chapter 1 teaches us that plainly. And we say, well, I know Romans 1 well. Look at that passage. Sodomy is horrible. Let's keep... Wait, wait till I show you this passage. Yes, I agree that from verses 24 down through 28, 
God is describing sodomy and how unnatural and how unclean and what an abomination it is and how vile it is and how perverse it is. And it doesn't matter what this world says or how many times it says it or what penalties they attach to it. This is the truth of God's Word. It's a vile abomination. It's perverse. It's contrary to nature. It is not convenient. We've used those words before. Those words are the last two words of verse 28. Not convenient. Because God has judged men with His judicial judgment of turning them over to sins, things which are not convenient. Now listen to the list. We love to focus against the sodomites from Romans chapter 1, but let the searchlight of God's Word come into every one of our hearts. Being filled with all unrighteousness. Not just scandalous unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. Fornication. Wickedness. Covetousness. You mean wanting something that's not mine is equal to sodomy? Covetousness. Maliciousness. You mean just being mean is as bad as sodomy? Full of envy. Being angry about someone else's blessings or favor or position. Murder. We already know what that includes. Debate. You mean wanting to argue is equal to sodomy? Deceit. You mean misrepresenting the truth is equal to sodomy? Malignity. Having, holding an ill will toward another person. Being malignant. Whispers. You mean just talking about someone in their absence is equal to sodomy? This is the searchlight of God's Word. May it shine brightly into every one of our hearts. This is how we have a heart like God's heart, is to let the full force of these, this description. Paul is not trying to fill up the rest of the chapter. Paul is telling us what we are all prone to have. Backbiters. Biting someone in the back when they're not around by saying something derogatory about them. Haters of God. Despiteful. Not listening to instruction, but being despiteful toward those that are trying to instruct. Proud. Boasters who want to claim things about themselves and act like they're something. Inventors of evil things. Disobedient to parents. Without understanding. Do you know that ignorance is a sin? When you've been taught and you have not learned, being without understanding is a sin. This is not new. We've taught this in this church for 21 years as long as it's been in existence. I and the pastor that preceded me. We are responsible for the Word of God and the things that we are taught to grow in that knowledge. Without understanding. Being confused by simple issues. That doesn't mean you're not seeking wise counsel from a multitude of counselors for issues. But if there, there, is a, there is a level of knowledge that the children of God ought to have, especially when they've been taught, and being without understanding and confused is wrong. Covenant breakers, breaking our deals, without natural affection, not having the affection that even nature teaches, whether it's a man toward a woman or it's parents toward children, husband toward a wife, implacable. There's nothing you can do to satisfy them or make them happy. No matter what, they're going to be upset. That is what the word implacable means. The southern expression is, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. That's what it means. That's stubbornness, right? But it's here in the Word of God. Some, sometimes you, don't, you can't do a thing to make a person happy. The whole nation of the, of the Jews was implacable. Jesus said, you know, you're like, a, you're like children in a marketplace. We piped to you and you wouldn't dance. That was John the Baptist. So I came mourning and you wouldn't mourn with me. That was Jesus Christ. Implacable. Could not please that generation. Oh, brethren, I don't want you to get lost on my illustrations. I want you to remember the words. Unmerciful. Not showing mercy towards someone that has offended you or transgressed against you. Look at this list. Unmerciful. This is not mercy towards sinners. This is mercy toward those that have offended you. The Bible says that when we're executing the judgment of God and God's judgment, we are not to pity. But this is personal offenses. If we're not merciful in overlooking personal offenses against ourselves, we are lining up ourselves with things that are not convenient 
just like sodomy. And when we look in this passage with all these bright spotlights shining into our hearts, this is what we've got to do to have a heart like God's. We have to examine ourselves by all of these. Brethren, look what it says in verse 32. Who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death. In God's scheme of things, these sins are all worthy of death. Remember, eating a piece of fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was worthy of death. You say, how could it? Because that's how God views breaking His commandment. And so you can take each one of these and trace them back to one of the Ten Commandments. Anyone that, anyone that has anyone in this list that is dealing with a brother, you know, whether it's envy, debate, malignity, whispers, backbiters, murder, it's all breaking the Sixth Commandment, just like I showed you in Matthew chapter 5. So it's worthy of death. Look at the warning. All these things are worthy of death. And then it says, that who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, we've been taught now, we cannot do these things. And we cannot compromise or have pleasure in persons that do them. That is the warning of Romans chapter 1. You know how I've, I've, we've taught and learned Romans one thirty two is a television verse. Because television is so much geared on doing these very things. But Romans one thirty two is broader than that. It's having pleasure in the persons that are guilty of these things. Do you understand? Here's a list of things not convenient that are God's judgment on sinful men. They're all worthy of death. We love to focus on sodomy. But boy, some of these get close to home. Amen. And we want to root all these things out. Amen. That is how the word judge not that ye be not judged means in Matthew chapter 7, to judge the sodomite and to be guilty of these sins. And if you go on and read chapter 2, you will see exactly that as the apostle reasons. Oh, you say that you're not guilty of adultery? Are you sure you haven't committed it? You, you hate sacrilege? Are you sure you haven't done some yourself in chapter 2? We cannot do these things, and we are not to have company or to compromise with people that do these things. Let me show you a verse that I gave you two weeks ago from David that fits this so well. Psalm 101. Psalm 101. When God blinds a man, even though he knows God has eternal power and a Godhead, and he knows that the things in that list are worthy of death, what does he do? He does that list of things, and he loves the friends that do them. It's incredible. But that's not what a child of God is called to be like. Do you remember these verses from Psalm 101? Don't, we love this psalm. I know that the Stephen and Debbie Eastland love this psalm. I know that some others of you also loved it. Remember verse 2? I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Isn't that what we're talking about? Having a heart like God's? I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. A froward heart. Notice, now David has said, my heart is perfect. And I'm going to walk in my house with a perfect heart. But now he goes beyond that to his associations. A froward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Whoso privately slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath an high look, and here it comes again, and a proud heart, will not I suffer. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land. This is the word of God to us. To have a heart like David's. David loved men. David loved Jonathan. David loved the worship of God. David loved all the saints of God. But David also hated the enemies of God and those that set themselves against God's commandments, as these verses right here teach us. For us to have a heart like God, we need to let His Word shine into our hearts, and we need to examine them. Brethren, I'm out of time. But when it comes to God has given us means to have a heart like His, we have to choose to incline our heart to God's ways. Right. We are always tempted to compromise. Whatever the cause, something that we love in the world, 
someone we love in the world, will tempt us to compromise God's commandments. And we must search our hearts. Do I have a temptation there to compromise the Word of God? And we've got to root it out in order to have a heart like God's. Right. We need to incline our hearts to the Lord. We need to be constantly directing the affections of our heart toward the Lord, that we love to read His Word. There have been times in my life, brethren, where if I would have heard that someone told me about reading their Bible on their vacation, I would think that person is just trying to pretend they're holy. See, I've got a heart just like yours. That is so wicked. That is malicious, evil surmising. I wonder if that person reads their Bible when they're home. You know, all these sorts of wicked thoughts that can come up in a heart. But what I want to say to you is that when a person gets, the, the, the closer they get their heart to the Lord, they want to read their Bible on vacation. Right. They want to read their Bible every day. They want to read their Bible more and more. And I want to exhort you to that kind of a heart. And when someone's talking about it, don't chafe against it. Don't surmise evil. Listen to it and be exhorted. We have got to incline our heart toward the Lord. That's, that's all that I'm saying in the last two minutes. We must incline our heart toward the things of the Lord, and that is setting our affection on reading His Word, setting our affection on praying, setting our affection on being with the brethren, being excited about Wednesday night service. Because we want to be with God's saints, because David wanted to be with God's saints, and we want to have a heart like the Lord's heart. So we choose to set our affections on things above, which is a other verse that I've given you before. We cannot measure ourselves by the world. Not at all. What if we're a failure in the world? A total abject failure. But you're living a life of godliness and contentment. That is great gain. Amen. We must believe that. We must have a heart that fully buys into that. Now, you may hear me and you say, it sounds good, but I don't know that I could still love the Lord if I didn't have much or have anything. That's what I mean by your whole heart buying into it. That's a heart that David had. He spent the first 40 years without anything. He was running around like a dog. We have to examine our hearts. Search me, O God. Have we learned a verse? Right. Those verses were picked with great care. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Knowing the verse, we're up to a Pharisee. Right. Practicing the verse, we're up to David. Right. And I didn't give you those verses just to memorize them. I gave those verses to you to use them. Search me, O God. Do you ask him that? And then let's put our treasure where the Lord wants it put. Lay it up for yourselves, treasures upon earth. Let's lay them up in heaven. Let's make our investments of our time and our money and our zeal and our emotions in the things of the Lord. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Because the heart follows where you're spending your time and your effort. Your heart's going to flow in that direction. Our goal is to be like David. Every man in here, Every man in here that has a heart even close to David's. Your heart's your first responsibility. Your wife's your second. Your children are your third. I just showed you, David. This house is going to have a house full of pure-hearted people. Did you notice that? I am going to walk with a pure heart in this house. And everyone else in here is going to have a pure heart. Because a froward heart, I will not abide. Do you remember Job? He prayed for his sons every day when they, when they had a party. There would Job be rising up early in the morning, offering a sacrifice. Go back and read it, Job 1.5. And he was asking God to forgive them if perchance they had sinned in their heart. The pure in heart, brethren, make it to heaven. We read that, Psalm 24.4. And you can read it in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. The King of glory shall come in. Do you feel like it's hopeless because you're a sinner? Brethren, I have the gospel to preach to you. 
Do you know what David prayed in Psalm 51 after committing a scandalous crime of adultery that was severely aggravated by having a whole harem to himself and then murdering the woman's husband? Do you know what David was able to pray in Psalm 51 and obtain quickly from the Lord? Create in me a clean heart, O God. There is hope. There is plenty of hope. Anyone in here discouraged by any sin, you're forgetting the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The Lord forgives, and He forgave David, and David is our example as the man after God's own heart. Why was David picked, and why were David's scandalous sins mentioned in the Bible but to give us hope that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope? There's no, hope, there's no reason to be hopeless this morning. And then, brethren, let's pray for this. Let's pray for it. David in Psalm 86.11 said, Unite my heart to fear thy name. I didn't get to the verses that you all know well. Brother Jeff, your favorite verse for as long as I've known you is Proverbs 4.23. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Didn't even get to that verse yet. Look at the commandment. Keep thy heart with how much diligence? With all diligence. Because Jesus would tell us, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And it's what comes out of the heart that defiles a man. For out of the heart come evil speakings and adulteries and murders. Keep thy heart with all diligence. But brethren, the verse that I wanted to get to was James 4, 8. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Does that sound like Psalm 24? Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. James 4, 8. It's a wonderful passage. It has much more than just that verse. Double-minded. A double-minded heart needs purifying. What would a double-minded heart be? You've got two treasures. You're looking in two directions. Double-minded. Your affections are not fully purified to put the Lord first in all things and at all times and according to His Word. Purify your hearts. If it's a commandment, we can do it. If David prayed for it, we can pray for it. May the Lord bless us to have pure hearts. Amen.